Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're talking elections. Again. (laughs) Why? Because several local races are headed to runoffs in December. And what's a runoff election? Runoffs happen when no single candidate gets more than 50% of the vote in the general election, which, as you all remember, happened on November 8th. So which races are going to run off? Basically, all the ones that didn't have an incumbent running. That is, races where no one was running for re-election, and it was a completely new slate of candidates. So that includes city council elections in District 3, 5, and 9, as well as the Austin mayor's race. District 1 and District 8, on the other hand, will not be going to runoff. So if you live in either of those districts, you don't have to worry about a city council runoff election. In District 1, Councilmember Natasha Harper-Madison won re-election with 53.2% of the vote. And in District 8, Councilmember Paige Ellis won re-election as well with 57.7% of the vote. Okay, so what does all this mean for you? Well, for starters, it means that you're going to have to head back to the polls pretty soon. Because even if you don't live in a council district with a runoff, everyone who's registered to vote within Austin City Limits gets to vote in the mayoral runoff. And early voting for the runoff lasts from December 1st through December 9th, and election day is December 13th. And I know that heading right back to the polls again can feel a bit overwhelming, but participating in this election is super important. First of all, it's going to completely reshape our council. After the runoffs are over, we're going to have three new council members and a new mayor. And considering the fact that Austin City Council only has 11 members, including the mayor, that's a pretty big shift. And second of all, turnout in runoff elections tends to be really low. Like, really, really, really low. And it's not uncommon for local runoff elections to be decided by just a few dozen votes. Take the 2014 city council runoff elections, for example. In District 8, Ellen Troxler beat Edward Scruggs by only 56 votes. (laughs) And in that same year in District 6, Don Zimmerman beat Jimmy Flanagan by only 191 votes. So in other words, when it comes to elections, your voice always matters. But when it comes to a runoff, it really, really, really matters. (laughs) Okay, so now that I've got you excited, let's get to the substance of today's show. We've gone back through all of our interviews that we did for the general city council elections and re-edited them. So you're able to just listen to the interviews with the candidates who actually made it to the runoff. So first up, we've got the runoff in the mayor's race, which is going to be between Celia Israel and Kirk Watson. Celia Israel and Kirk Watson were the two highest vote getters in that general election, with Celia Israel receiving 40% of the vote and Kirk Watson getting 35%. So let's go ahead and listen back to those interviews I recorded with Celia and Kirk. First up, Celia Israel. Okay, I'm here with Celia. We're talking... Mayor's race, obviously. Uh, Let's just get right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? (laughs) Well, my name is Celia Israel. I'm a member of the Texas House of Representatives. I've been there for nine years, and um, I'm originally from El Paso, Texas, uh, the daughter of Maria and Hugh. He was a truck driver. She was a teacher's aide. And um, I mentioned my working class background because I I know that it's helped make me a better, um, more understanding state representative, and it will make me a better mayor. And uh, why am I running to be a mayor for all of Austin? We're, we're in really difficult times right now. And I want to use this. Um, this is a crisis. as It is an emergency, whatever you want to call it. 
And let's let's look back on this time and be proud of the way that Austin uh, addressed the crisis. I want us to become to hang on to that spirit of Austin that invited me here in 1982 to attend the University of Texas. That spirit of Austin is in danger, and that's why I'm running. Mm-hmm. Let's let's dive right into the issues. Housing affordability obviously is on top of everyone's minds. I know that um, you put out kind of a housing plan or proposal yeah. that you'd like to see happen if you're elected with six different parts to it. Let's let's dive into some of those. Sure. Um, you know, the one thing that the first one you have there, the first bullet point here is more housing for working families. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what we can be doing as a city to actually provide housing for working families? Because that's what so much of the conversation has been on lately. And it feels like a lot of our efforts have fallen flat or have not done as much as we would like them to do. Yeah. Well, uh, there's no doubt we we have we have failed uh, many of the the working men and women of, of Austin and their and their families. Uh, I'll go back a little bit as well. Um, Austin has a history of saying, let's not build it and they won't come. That's Mm -hmm. been true of transportation and it's been true of housing. Um, At the turn of the century of the last century, we, we had a very racist policy that said we want, we, we don't want people of color in certain neighborhoods. Um, We stopped building fourplexes and duplexes dramatically in the eighties we of course uh, built an, an I-35 that was that was intended to divide. It was uh, something that we now call a, a, a part of our racist past. We haven't done enough as a city to overcome the, that segregationist uh, past, and and I say that as someone who is a big uh, advocate for 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 transit and and multimodal. So I, when I talk about housing, I tend to talk about transit and land use at the same time because I want people to live closer to where they work, basically. So what can the city do? Some people say, well, the market is the market, right? Um, but number one, we, we brought much of this onto ourselves. And um, number two, we own, we own land. Um, we own 6,000 tracts of land. And the, that city does. Be, the, the city of Austin does. Yeah. And um, we could be doing public good with public place. That's one of the points on, on, my, on my policy. Um, I'm trying to sound the alarm that we are pushing out the teachers and the nurses and the, and the, and the, uh, the cooks and the musicians, they, they, they no longer can afford to live here. The median home price is now North of $600,000 or it's wavering around $600,000. And what can we do? It's going to take bold, intentional projects, um, like taking what was, um, what was a bank, what was a shopping center, what was what what is our own property that needs to be converted and it's being used as storage facilities right now. Um, I refuse to accept that Austin is doing all that it can. And we're one of the few American cities that's losing its percentage of Latinos and African-Americans as well. So we're losing our diversity. And even if you don't care about diversity, we're losing our economic strength. We can't continue to expect people to to uh, to teach our kids and then go home at night to Bastrop, Texas. Mm-hmm. That, that's not, that's not fun. That's not viable. And most importantly, that's not equitable. That's not Austin. Um, I moved here in 1982. My mom and dad moved a mobile home over to Lake Austin Boulevard. And um, I lived on $140, a rent, my rent was $140 a month. And I delivered pizzas um, right there at MLK. 
at the University of Texas, I came out of college with very little debt. Those days are a part of our past, but I mention it because I, I want the future Celias to say, I want to live right here. And um, our, our, and our, our economy is, is in a, is in a tenuous position because of the policy of our past. So to correct that, we need to be intentional and then we need to be bold. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those specifics there. The public housing, uh, I mean, the public land component is interesting. I don't think a lot of people realize how much land the city owns um, Mm -hmm. that is being used for, like you mentioned, things like storage space or office space that might be able to be better used. What are the ways that we could activate that public land more quickly because you know a lot of times i feel like our default is well we need a housing bond to build housing on it and you have a limited amount of funds housing bonds are great but you know can it seems like you're also looking into some more creative solutions with ways that we could really build land on some of that public space quicker yeah um a lot of my my campaign is about you know meeting people where they are, and I was in the Crestview neighborhood, and the the neighbors pointed out the Austin Energy facility at Justin Lane near Justin Lane and Lamar. Um, that is uh, a piece of land that we that we own, and the my 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 um, our neighbors pointed it out to us and said, you know, the city's been thinking about doing housing there. We pulled up a community impact newspaper article. The city had has been and still is thinking about doing housing there, it's been 12 years. So this is, it's not like I'm the first person to say, let's use our public mm-hmm. land for good, but I'm trying to lean in on the urgency of the situation um, on behalf of those who are driving this economy. And um, you know, my personal uh, story is relevant here as well because my wife and I are, are between homes right now. And we got that notice from the property management company that said 300 more dollars a month if you want to stay here, take it or leave it. So, you know, I, I understand that people are hurting and that we are we are at a very, uh, uh, we are at an inflection point because of this housing crisis. At the end of the day, this is a housing supply problem and we need more kinds of housing in more parts of the city, not pushing people out to the Eastern edge of the, of the, of the county and then pat ourselves on the back because of that. I'm, I'm, I'm not losing sight of the fact that part of equity, part of Project Connect, part of us being the 11th largest city in the country is being proud of the fact that in the midst of this crisis, we, we did something intentional for, for, for musicians and for nurses and teachers and bus drivers. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are driving this economy and should not be forgotten. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard you mention a lot about things like fourplexes, sixplexes, eightplexes, you know, kind of this missing middle housing that we like to talk about yeah. a lot in Austin. Yeah. Um, and that's another one where I've heard council talk about the need for that for years and years and years and years. And yet, like, yeah. it doesn't seem like we have a lot more missing middle housing. Yeah. So what specifically can council be doing in order to really ramp up development by the private sector of that missing middle housing? Um. The um, the missing middle housing is 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 a is is our challenge, and you you nailed it right on the head. It's another item that we have talked about, uh, and uh, the city has a program called Affordability Unlocked, for example, and that's a program where if somebody wanted to take an acre of land, I, I have had this example as as a realtor, and turn it into what was a house, and turn it into a couple of fourplexes. Um, 
the city will help you pay for your utilities if you designate some of those units at an affordable unit. The, 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 the deal that has to change is the speed. The, mm. city, uh, the city treats that development as if it was a 300 unit apartment complex and it needs a site plan and it needs two years of review. Why, why, uh, why a fourplex or a sixplex needs two years of review is the, is the reason why we see people demolishing houses and building one big house because the city doesn't change its processes and procedures to say that. So you and I just talked about the, the bigger projects where we could build row houses, maybe we could put a childcare center or a pocket park. The other, the other component of this is a fourplex or, or a couple of, or a sixplex where it's appropriate, where somebody mm-hmm. could, could walk, to, walk to the number one bus and catch it every eight minutes. This is life in a big city, but Austin has never fit into that that uniform of the 11th mm. largest city in the world. And it, it, it's going to take a movement. It's mm. not about Celia, it's not about a title. I'm running because uh, this campaign is about creating a movement and an awareness around housing. Other, other leaders in our community have been, have been crying for this kind of action. I just happen to be a woman with, with, with a good record politically, who is leaning in on the city that molded me in 1982 to say we can do so much more. And I, and that's, that's my goal. Yeah. Let's talk some about your record. You know, when I think about your work um, at the Texas legislature, I think a lot about transportation. I know that was an issue that you really dove into. Can you talk some about um, some of your work at the ledge of the transportation and then kind of how you're going to learn, use those lessons learned to feed into, um, you know, being mayor, because in Austin, we have two big transportation projects ahead of us. We have what's going to happen with I-35 and the build out of Project Connect. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like your experience can help with that? Well, it's not just my legislative experience. I'll take you back a little bit to say Mm -hmm. I was on the, I was on the environmental board, um, a bond committee, the, uh, Robert Miller advisory committee and the police oversight board, um, so, you know, to give some institutional background, the, of course, the Robert Miller Advisory Committee is where there used to be a damn airport. <laughs> People don't realize that. But um, and then nine years in the legislature. So working working in the legislature, it uh, I was on the Transportation Committee for two for two legislative sessions and uh, being the person to advocate for transportation safety, to advocate for multimodal transportation solutions um, and understanding that um, you've, you've got to. Victory is somewhere in the middle. We've got to work across those party lines to find that victory. Uh, and with 150 members of the House of Representatives, I think I will transfer that to a 10-member council where each of those members deserves to be respected for the turf that they represent, right? They were elected. They know intersections and people and, and uh, b- small business owners that I do not know. So as mayor, I hope to... I hope to, to, to um, not just lead the meetings, but to lead the discussion and be respectful of those 10 members because I can't get anything done without their, their support. And um, uh, the, 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 the people skills, the, the realities of moving things forward is, is part of the job. You can, you, maybe, maybe um, one of my colleagues on the dais can help me with this item number 50, but they can't be with me on number 80. That's okay. There'll be another opportunity for us to work together. We can't let this crisis get in the way of us moving things forward. 
Mm -hmm. And specifically around I-35, this has been a big one. Do you feel like there's anything the city can do about this? Because there is this tension, you know, TxDOT and the state own I-35 or in charge of it. And there's this back and forth. What do you feel like the city can do about shaping the future of I-35? We, the, the TxDOT plan is out of sync with the community's vision for what they want in the 935. We have in the Biden administration, an administration with, with um, uh, uh, that is more attuned to equity than they ever have been. <clears throat> the equity component of I-35 is when we dig it and then cap it and, and stitch it, if that's what happens. That's the equity part. Um, TxDOT is saying to us, you, you will, uh, we're, we're going to expand more lanes and you're, and that's, and that's what you're going to get. They've been tinkering with it, but they're still destroying over 100 homes and businesses. So there is an equity, um, argument to be made to, to, uh, to, uh, the Biden administration, who's a big, who, who will play a big role in what I-35 becomes. Um, I have challenged the, the, uh, TxDOT at, at, several different occasions as a legislator, um, you can't just build more lanes and expect that you have succeeded. Uh, Houston is the example of that. My, uh, my main opponent in this race was quoted as saying that we need to leave that tech stop plan alone. And I, I couldn't disagree more. This is a time for us to elevate our voice as, as mayor, as council, as members of the community to say, this is not the asset that we need. This is just repeating the sins of the past. This is just exacerbating it, especially at a time when we are, we are challenged with the, um, with, with climate change. We can't, we, we, the future is, is, is multimodal. The future is autonomous, perhaps. The future involves more technology components. And I'm not getting any of those assurances from TxDOT. So I'm, I'm quite comfortable saying to TxDOT, I, I challenge your plan and I expect more from you. Yeah. We don't have too much time left, but before we close, I wanted to, you know, you mentioned you're running against Kirk Watson as one of your major opponents in this race. He had been mayor before, you know, what do you feel like you bring to the table with your experience that, that, that sets you apart from him, that you feel like you can really address the crisis we're dealing with right now as a city? Well, number one, we, we're both, we both have a lot of experience, right? We're yeah. both, we have both have been in the same swimming pool. The difference is that this race is not about nostalgia and the good old days. Mm-hmm. This race is about visionary, bold, futuristic plans to change the heart of the city. Mr. Watson would have us uh, do some creative land use uh, out by Decker Lake, which is great. I'm not opposed to that, but I don't want to let us off the hook for what about what about that nurse at Seton? What about that teacher at Zilker Elementary? What about the kindergarten teacher uh, at uh, at at that uh, in, in downtown Austin, these are these are the people that we are we are losing by the week, by the week. My family has been through that, and I've talked to people who are going through that. So, my my vision is as a as a working class chick, uh, born of working class parents, and a lived experience that's very different from my opponents. As a Latina, as a member of the LGBT community, uh, as someone who's lived here since 1982. We should, we should look back on this crisis and say, wow, that was rough, but Austin did really cool things to, to, to be intentional about work, uh, the workers who are driving that economy. If we don't, if we don't take bold and decisive action, 
we are going to become a city of um, elitist millionaires who, who got their piece of Austin. Mm-hmm. Well, great. But the spirit of Austin will be lost. The spirit of Austin that drew me here in 1982 and said, we welcome you, Latina, uh, lesbian, different kind of chick from El Paso, Texas. We welcome you into the fold. We're losing that spirit. Mm-hmm. And then just before we close, let's get to know you a little bit better. What's your show and tell item for us today? Well, I was tempted to bring out my Longhorn Gnome because it's OU weekend, baby. But, <laughs> um, uh, I think about my mom a lot on this on this journey. Um, Maria Elena was a patriot and a huge respect. She loved Barbara Jordan more than anybody I know. When she would come and visit me, and, and she would when she would fly in in her wheelchair, I would I would wheel her up to the Barbara Jordan statue, and mom would just you you think she was looking at Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> um, but anyway, this is this is mom rocking That's an what, Austin shirt. Yeah, this is in El Paso, Texas, and she. She was so proud of me. And so she was a proud American and a proud Texan. My God, I love Texas very much. And it's because of Maria Elena Gomez Israel. This is, this is, this is the woman that brought me into the world. And that was Celia Israel. Next up, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Kirk Watson. I'm here with Kirk. We're talking the mayor's race. Let's dive right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? Well, my name's Kirk Watson. Um, for those that don't know me, I was mayor of Austin, Texas from 1997 until 2001. Uh, I was elected to the Texas Senate representing Austin and the surrounding area in 2006, and I served there until 2020 when I became the founding dean of the Hobby School of Public Affairs at the University of Houston. Uh, I, the pandemic kind of changed the nature of that job since uh, they shut the campus, but it, but I'm now back in Austin, uh, although I never really left, and I'm uh, running for mayor because I love Austin, Texas, and we have some big challenges right now, and I believe this city needs and deserves to have a mayor that has a proven record of success at bringing people together, creating coalitions, and getting the big things done that we're going to need in the future. Awesome. Uh, before we get into the, some of those big issues, I want to learn a little bit more about you again. You were mayor before. Um, what was one thing maybe from that time in office that you're you're really proud of that still stands you know, today? And maybe one thing that was a lesson learned for you that you'd like to take into potentially a second time in the mayor's seat? Sure. Um, the 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 one thing that I would point to uh, that I'm really proud of is that when I was first elected mayor of Austin, Austin had a de facto two-party system. It wasn't Republican and Democrat, but it was environmentalists versus developers. It was the Save Our Springs Alliance versus the Chamber of Commerce or Sierra Club versus the Real Estate Council. And people said, you'll never be able to break through that, that that's always going to be there. They saw our politics as a zero-sum game, all or nothing. Uh, Somebody had to win and somebody had to lose. And I said, I just don't see things that way. And so we were able to bring an end to that war. And at the same time, in in doing so, we preserved more land uh, than in the history of the city of Austin and, and, and did that as part of those efforts. So uh, I'm really pleased not only with the way we reshape politics, 
but the way we showed that that politics in Austin doesn't have to be winner take all. Uh, lessons learned. Uh, there, you know, there's always lessons to to be learned. But one of the key lessons learned was that we uh, went for an election to have transit, uh, mm, to have yep, a light in rail system. Yeah, in 2000, and uh, it passed in Austin, but it didn't pass in the metro area. And one of the key lessons learned from that for me was that when you're taking a big program like that to the people, you need to always be sure that you have clearly defined your purpose for that program and that you've tried to bring in new and different constituencies that may be for it for different reasons than you or the original people, but you build those constituencies and then you have greater success. Yeah. Um, let's dive some into the issues. Obviously, housing affordability, top of mind for everyone. I know that you've put forth um, a plan of things you'd like to, to start working on right away when you get into office when it comes to housing affordability. I thought we could run through some of those bullet points sure. um, and share that now. So one of the things um, you have there top of mind is really looking at our development services department. Do you want to talk about what you mean by that and some a sunset review process with that? As yeah, well? I'd be, uh, be happy to do that. Um, I was on the Texas Sunset Commission for many years, appointed by the lieutenant governor. It's a the Sunset Commission is an independent agency that reviews uh, all other state agencies to determine whether or not they're doing their job, whether they're effective or they're using best practices, things of that nature. And while I was on the Sunset Commission, as a matter of fact, I uh, had Capital Metro go through the Texas Sunset process to improve its operations and the way it governed itself. Um, what I want to do is, for our Development Ser Services Department, is have the city auditor, which reports to the mayor and council, have the city auditor set up a sunset process and take no more than nine months, but scrub and review our Development Services Department from top to bottom soup to nuts, get it all done, making recommendations about best practices, making recommendations about why it takes so long to get a permit, to get a site develop, a, a site plan approved, those kinds of things, because that's costing money and slowing down the ability to get housing on the ground, which would change uh, costs. So basically use a nationally recognized model and immediately and with urgency review that department and then implement change. Mm -hmm. And kind of tied to that, you also mentioned um, cutting some of those development fees. Some people might not even know this, but when a project is going through this process, they have to pay uh, permitting fees and fees basically to the development services department to do that review process. Do you want to talk a little bit about cutting that? Sure. Um, one of the things, of course, if, if we're if we're in a an affordability or cost of living emergency, which I think we are, then we need to act with urgency. That's what you do when you're in an emergency. You act with it with a sense of urgency and purpose. And one of the things that happens is that when someone wants to come in and develop, let's say, an affordable housing project, they're asked by the city of Austin to pay, as you pointed out certain fees. Well, I'm calling for a reduction in those fees by at least 50% for the kinds of projects that we're looking for to get more housing on the ground and faster. There's no need for the city of Austin 
to get in its own way when it says it wants to reduce the cost of housing and then turns around and adds to the cost of housing by charging fees. All right. And then another thing on the list here is letting each of the council districts take the lead a bit more in the code rewrite process. People have been listening in Austin know we've been kind of caught up in this land development code rewrite uh, debate for many, many years now. Um, talk a little bit more about what you mean by this. This is one that I'll, I'll mention, you know, your main opponent in this race, Celia Israel, has criticized a little bit. So talk about what it is and why you think this is an idea that might get some traction. So part of the reason we've been stagnated for a, about a decade on trying to get changes to the land development code is because we made it an all or nothing fight. We said that it is going to be this code and it will apply comprehensively across the city and in every district just this way. And as a result of that, uh, there were issues with it and including legal issues where the court said, you can't do it that way. And so what happened is in this all or nothing to fight, we got nothing. So what I'm saying is let's create a process that allows for districts that want certain types of density in their districts. Maybe they even want code next uh, applied in their district. They would be able to bring that forward and it not be vetoed or thrown out because of the way a vote has to be taken when it includes a comprehensive uh, approach. Now, a couple of things. It doesn't allow any district to veto the fact that they may have housing in their district. There would be a baseline. We currently have a baseline across the city. It's called the blueprint for housing. It, it, let that baseline serve across uh, the city and then incentivize by saying to a district, if you're going beyond the baseline or moving faster than other districts, then you'll get an increment of taxes that because when, when, the, when the tax base grows because of your development, you'll get a bigger share of that increment for things like um, uh, displacement, anti-displacement costs, for rent uh, issue, helping with rent, rent, uh, rent assistance, maybe parks, roads, all, all those sorts of things. In addition to that, you would also have what I anything that is citywide, it would continue to apply citywide. Um, so for example, how, how do we make it easier to get uh, accessory dwelling units on a piece of property? Or how do we make it easier to avoid having just a McMansion when we might have a duplex or a threeplex or a fourplex? Those would apply citywide and would, would impact all of the districts. But the bottom line to it is, is it's, uh, I've proven in the past, an ability to figure out ways to avoid the winner-take-all approach. And what stagnated us for the last decade is it was a winner-take-all approach, and we all kind of lost. Mm -hmm. Two more points on your housing ideas here. Um, next one is the Central Texas Housing Partnership. Do you want to explain what that is briefly and let people know why you feel like it's a good idea? Yeah, um, the Central Texas Housing Partnership is what I am proposing that we do with all of the jurisdictions in Central Texas. We bring them all together, and that way we can identify the land that we all own that can be used to help provide more density and more housing. And then as part of that, the city of Austin would be uh, helpful in making sure that permitting uh, gets done in a, in a timely fashion. 
but we've got a lot of fallow land that's not doing a whole lot of good for our taxpayers. And so I'm saying what we ought to do is make that work for the taxpayers. And that is across jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is an interesting idea. This is the idea of building a master plan commute at Walter, uh, Walter E. Long. You know, this one I'm curious about because I can understand the idea of like, whoa, this is a huge amount of land we could build a lot of housing on. Also, you know, I, I'll admit I'm a parks person. People love parks in the city and we're also losing that. Do we want to sacrifice our parkland for development? Talk about what you're proposing here, though, right? Because it's a mix, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And okay. very important that you recognize that it's a mix. Okay, so explain so, it for us. Yeah, sure. Um, out, at, out at Decker Lake, you have... Um, you have a lake, obviously, um, called Decker, <laughs> and then you have a whole lot of land, um, thousands of acres of land that surround it. Most of that land is currently fallow. There's not anything going on it, and people aren't using it as a park. Now, you have the Expo Center that the city leases to the county, and which is in bad, bad shape and needs upgrading, and you have... Um, some area for people to go and, and do a little bit of boating and get out on the lake. But most of that land is not being used as a park today. The planning for a park revealed that it was an estimate would cost $800 million. And that was in 2018. So from a practical perspective, Going in and master planning that as a, a, a 2,500 acre park or 1,600 acre park or whatever it is, is, is probably not practical. And we ought to get a return for the taxpayer. So what I've proposed is set aside a huge park. If you, if you did eight, I'm making this up, but if you do 800 acres, that would make that the largest park in Austin by a long shot. Um, except if you can't count wilderness area, for example, the Barton Creek Greenbelt and that kind of thing. And you don't have to make it just a single park. You could make it a park in different parts of the, of, of the development. Then what you would have is you would have about three Miller neighborhoods that we could master plan for the future, just like we did with Miller back when I was mayor then. When I was mayor the first time, we closed the Miller Airport. It was about 740 acres, and we master planned it. It's the most dense development in Austin, maybe in the state of Texas, um, and, and it's working. What this would do would be to allow us to build more affordability and more housing over time, including places for you know, office space, retail. It would be a master planned major community for our long term. And a key part of this is some people say, oh, well, it's, it's way out. The truth of the matter is it sits on a rail line called the Green Line that's already owned by Capital Metro. So you would have transit so that that, that development would be about 10 minutes from downtown. The taxpayers deserve to get a return. And by the way, I'm a big, big parks guy, but we got to be practical and we have to prioritize. Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned transportation. Let's talk about that uh, briefly. Uh, two big transportation things, you know, everyone's been talking about. I-35, we'll start with that. Um, what are What's your general opinion about I-35 and the expansion that's been proposed and what do you feel like we can do as a city realistically? Because that's also a component of this conversation. That, that's, a, that, that's a very important point. I'm glad you asked the question that way. Well, first of all, 
I will fight all of the time to reduce congestion in this town. And we need to do that. And I-35 is a key part of that. It makes, and it would make a difference for a variety of reasons. First of all, I-35 has divided our community. It, it's, it, uh, it was, it's, it's, it involves race and, if, and we need to get rid of that monument to a division in our community and, 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 and racism. And we can do that by taking out the upper decks, lowering it, and making it at, at, at grade and tie east and west together. The word is yeah. sti- yeah, stitch it together um, and, and, and have the opportunity for caps. The second thing is affordability in this community is not just an Austin issue. It's a regional issue. And people are moving out of the city for a variety of reasons, but including affordability. And it seems like some say, well, we, we, we feel for you when you can't live in Austin, but the minute you get out of Austin, we don't care whether you can get back into town. And we need to be able to have transportation improvements that will do that. Third, it would be the second biggest transit project in our, in our community behind only Project Connect, because you would have managed lanes the, the, the added lanes would be managed lanes that would allow not only for uh, uh, buses to, to work like they do on Mopac uh, now in that managed lane, very successfully, I might add, but it would also make it a safer road because EMS and fire would be able to use those managed lanes and get through better. Um, so th- the final thing I'll say is it the road needs to be improved. We need to continue to push for improvements but we don't own the road. And you know, it's an inter- interstate highway that has a number of jurisdictions. We need to have as much of our, our Austin values put in there as we can, but ultimately we need to fix the road and there are multiple reasons to do that. Mm-hmm. And then before we close, we've been asking our candidates to do a little show and tell activity at the end. I'm not sure if your staff told you to, uh, about this. I was emailing with them. Do you have that? Acti- a thing for this? I've got something that I think describes me pretty well. And why okay. Stuff. All right. Let's, Is that let's what see. what you're after? Yes, I would love it. All right. Okay. What do you got for us? So background real quickly. Uh, my wife was out of town recently and I was out campaigning and doing, you know, different campaign, yeah, yeah. And when I came home, I came in the back door, which is the way we enter the house. And there were toys in the kitchen. And I didn't, I wasn't playing with those toys. Um, And I I noticed it all the way into the family room. And I came up immediately to my office, which is where I'm sitting right now. And the place looked like a playroom. (laughs) That's why Mario is still there, right? Uh, (laughs) Right behind me. Of course, I wasn't upset to begin with, but if I were, this was on my desk. And if you can see that, that's a note that says pop. I love you from Effie. That's my almost (laughs) five-year-old granddaughter. But I have another granddaughter who's, I guess, about 18 months old. And she also did her (laughs) note to me there at the bottom of that. Just Um, a bunch of scribbles. (laughs) Just a bunch of scribbles. Just a bunch of scribbles. But, But Effie, you know, she calls me Pop and she writes, Pop, I heart you from Effie. And I gotta tell you, um, when I was a younger man and people would talk about their grandkids, I was always happy for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. You like your grandkids. <laughs> but as you can tell, I've become as goofy about them as you can get. 
that was Kirk Watson. Now we're going to shift gears a bit and focus on the District 3 City Council runoff race. That's going to be between Jose Velasquez and Daniela Silva, who finished very close to each other in the general election. Jose had 36.43% of the vote and Daniela had 34.42%. So to refresh our memories, let's go ahead and listen to those interviews I recorded with them again. First up, Jose Velasquez. I'm here with Jose and we are talking city council. Um, let's just get right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? All righty. Uh, well, thank you for having me. And again, it's a joy. I'm a fan. Um, so my name is Jose Velasquez. I am a fourth generation Austinite. Um, and I'm running because of the lack of urgency around affordability. I was raised by a single mother with my three siblings in East Austin in the 80s and 90s, making $25,000 a year. Adjusted for inflation, that would be about $48,000 a year, and she wouldn't be able to afford anything in East Austin. Um, we hear all the time about the tale of two cities, and 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 that's one of the reasons that I wanted to run, because I, I've lived it, and I can speak with authority, intelligence, and trust in the community about the disparities facing our city. I've been doing the work in the community for years. I have a proven progressive track record as a coalition builder and community organizer, and I rolled out. Uh, an affordable Austin plan, which is built off of lived experience, ideas from our District 3 neighbors, and practical and equitable application. And these are our, these are our first steps to making sure our city's values merits policy. And it calls for full day pre-K, expanded broadband access, um, encouraging more remote work for the folks that, for our city rosters that, for the folks that came back immediately, they could have continued to, to remote work and, uh, you know, helps them stay off the road, less congestion, uh, less impact on our environment and people are closer to their families. And the fourth part of that is that, like a holistic approach to our housing crisis is really bringing folks that are operating out of their silos and out of their corners into um, uh, to the table to have a, a genuine conversation and, and an honest conversation about what we can do. Because um, the expectation in Austin right now is that you have to make $100,000 to live comfortably. Um, with the median income being $65,000 and the average cost of a house being $600,000, the math just isn't there and it's not <laughs> adding up. Um, and you know, that that's not the, you know, where does that leave our teachers? Where does that leave our workers? Where does that leave our union members, EMS, our single mothers? And that's not the Austin that I was born into. And it's definitely not the Austin that I want to leave uh, future generations. And I'm, I'm in this race because I have always worked to elect good progressives to council, to county, to the state house, to um, governor, um, and to Congress. But I, I threw my hat in the ring because I believe it's going to take somebody that can bridge the divide, the chasm between old Austin and new Austin. Because I think th that is a lot of the hurdles that we run into is the, well, you're not from here. You don't get to have a say in the city. And then you've been here too long. Your, your ideas are out of touch. Um, and really bridging that divide and and um, somebody that has a lived experience and trust in the community to create space for a new Austin, but can bring old Austin to the table. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder, so yeah. I, yeah, totally. I, I want to dive into a little deeper into some of those things you mentioned in the affordable Austin uh, kind of policy plan that you're, you're proposing here. So let's talk about housing first. When we talk about um, affordable housing, 
this is one, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine. I've been talking to a lot of candidates. You hear a lot of candidates say we need more affordable housing in Austin. And then my next question is how, or yeah, how, and usually it's a vague answer. So uh, tell me a little bit more. How do we actually bring about affordable housing in Austin? What do you feel like city council can be doing policy-wise to uh, improve our housing affordability? Uh, well, we need to make sure that it's not it's not just three districts shouldering the responsibility of affordable housing in Austin, Texas. And that's what we have right now is my district, District 2 and District 1 are the ones that are creating the most affordable housing in and Austin. And, and they're all in East and, Austin. And, there's some, and they're all along the Eastern Crescent. I mean, and that is the classic divide. Again, I'll, I'll circle back to it. it's going to take somebody that has a lived experience and historical perspective of of and understanding of what has happened and how we can move beyond that. Because that's the other thing that I don't do. I don't want to sit in a silo, sit in a corner and argue old beefs that we, we we haven't got past. I'm a progressive thinker and I believe we need to understand the problem and figure out how we move past it. But it really is getting, if that is one hurdle is getting beyond just three districts shouldering the responsibility of affordable housing in Austin, Texas. We need to be able to, to have affordable housing in every single district in this city. And is it also building denser? Is it, you know, some people have thrown out getting rid of single family zoning or allowing more multifamily units to be built throughout the entire city? And, um, you know, do you, have you thought about some of those more concrete policy ideas as well? Oh, a- absolutely. We, we need to have more uh, more mixed use, more more um, uh, multifamily. And, in, and again, it needs to be there. I, I was reading somewhere where it says that from 45th Street down to the river, west of Mopac, there is no mixed family housing. And mm-hmm. that is insane to me. And the, also there, there are protected areas in this city where you could not build anything. And, and that is definitely one of them. And we definitely need to get past that. But we do need, we do need to build, we need, we need to build denser. We're about to have the blue line come in, in, in district three, we need to figure out how we can build more and, and, and more and more affordable housing along that, along that major thoroughfare. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to hit on uh, broadband. That was another one you mentioned. Uh, talk a little bit more about this. And and what can city council do? What role can they play in increasing broadband access for Austinites? Okay, so currently I, I am the interim ED of a nonprofit here in Austin. And there is a lot of federal money that came in after um, when COVID hit to be able to offer free broadband. And I've worked and collaborated with AT&T, and they have told me that there are a number of um, grants and programs out there that the city has just not picked up. And again, I'm not I'm not knocking them because everybody is trying to do everything after uh-huh. COVID and during COVID, right? Like nobody was prepared. It was it was not anything that that anybody was expecting. So I'm not knocking them. But what I'm saying is that we are at a place now where that those monies are still there, and they were baked into to the federal budget. So they're going to be there next year also. So we, I think that's a starting, that is a place where we can start with this, is going after some of those dollars, but also realizing that we are one of the tech capitals of this country, and we need to be able to provide broadband. We need to work better with the school district to figure out which one of, which of our students need it, and, and which families can help, can essentially, we can eliminate some of the hurdles to, um, uh, uh, to jobs, some of the hurdles to services, mm. some of the hurdles to to social programs by at the minimum being able to provide broadband access. 
Yeah. Okay. So prioritizing that a little bit more than we have been. And then what about um, pre-K? You mentioned that as well. Universal, you know, free pre-K. How is that a program city council could start to initiate? I know we've begun dabbling and giving some some grants and, and funding to like Del Valley and different schools for targeted programs. How could we grow that out? Um. So with that, I, I think that's going to be on the on the shoulders of I think we need to put that on the shoulders of the voters and it's going it's going to be something that we're going to have to ask because I believe in in our democracy as a city but it's going to have to be a city lift and I think the one area the one area where, where this is impacting people most is that right now uh child care is upward of upwards of twelve hundred dollars a month per 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 child if we were able to get our students in or our our young learners in earlier because as it stands right now, we and, and this is strictly speaking for AISD. Um, as it stands now, we only have half day pre-K pro programming. So that means the people that cannot afford to pick up their kid at eleven o'clock or noon right. can't, can't go. aren't going to pre-K at all. Um, so it really is just digging in, working with the chambers, working with the community to get to get this lift done because it's so necessary. We get our kids started earlier; they have a better quality of life, better better chance to be successful financially. And people, we're seeing more and more how we, we are running short on employees. If you're able to take $1,200 immediately off of, or put $1,200 immediately back into somebody's budget, that has an immediate practical impact on somebody's life. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like this is the kind of thing that on the face someone might think, isn't this something that AISD should be in charge of? But it sounds like what you're talking about is trying as a council member to be a little bit of a catalyst for what would be an effort that a lot of different organizations would have to get involved with. Have any other school districts in Texas done this? Do you know? We they have it in San Antonio. My, okay. One of my uh, one of my uh, friends, our HUD secretary um, uh, Julian Castro, did it in San Antonio, and it really was digging in because the, the one thing that is happening right now. Uh, so, from an economic standpoint, a workforce standpoint, and a and just a, uh, um, an educational and social service standpoint, we can it. it to me, it's a no-brainer, right? But of course, everything, every every piece, every piece of policy is going to have its detractors. But chambers of commerce, right now, if they aren't already being like inundated with requests from their members, are soon going to find themselves in very tough spots where their members are asking, "Find help us find employees," or "What are you right. doing to help attract employees?" And that is one thing that I think we can start with right there, even if it wasn't very well intentioned uh, uh and and the purpose wasn't to get our kids in school earlier and uh, and help alleviate some of that um the child care costs to our parents then it's a good idea economically for our workforce right coalition building okay and absolutely then yeah, totally. And and before we wrap up, I know we're doing a little show and tell with some of our candidates. I want to talk about a little bit more about you. What's your show and tell item for today? Okay, so mine and this this is going to pull at the heartstrings. Mine, right. it, it was the why, the why, right? Yeah. Okay. So my why is my younger brother and my niece. That was the day she was born. There are some um, some hospital folks back here, the nurses and doctors. Um, my little brother was murdered in 2009 in front of my mother's house. He was shot and killed. And um, and so I have helped and, and continue to help raise my niece. But the reason um, that he is my why is because before that, I was an advocate. I got involved, you know, uh, here and there, helped people get elected, did, did my uh, did, did my civic duty. After he passed, 
I wanted to make sure it, it, it became very clear to me that my charge in life is to be of service to others and be of service to kids that come, that grew up like I did in East Austin, that didn't have all the resources that understood that back in the day, we used to call I-35, the great wall of Austin, because mm-hmm. we knew re- resources didn't come over and we rarely went over there. In fact, I was chatting with members of Sunshine Camp earlier this week and talking to them about how I used to be there on scholarship and, and, you know, come full circle, I'm back there as a candidate for public office. Wow. and it's just, it, he is my why, because mm-hmm. my family is everything to me, but my little brother held a very special place in my heart. We, we, we were very close and I want to ensure that people that people and kids and, and, and parents that have come up in this community know that they have a champion and that, and that this government at its base belongs to us and it should be for us. And it should be a direct reflection of who we are as a district and as a city. And that was Jose Velasquez. Next up, let's let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Daniela Silva. All right, I'm here with Daniela and we're talking about city council, city council election. Thanks for joining today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Okay, let's just get right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? Well, my name is Daniela Silva. My pronouns are she, they. And I am uh, the daughter of an immigrant, um, an incredible woman um, from Colombia who raised me to um, have all of the opportunities that she never got to have. And so I have been able to um, just have an incredible uh, life experience and journey um, through uh, exploring how I can serve um, the world in the best way. And, and that's led me to this opportunity to try and serve my community in, in the way that I see um, I can serve best. I'm part of the LGBTQIA2S plus community. I'm a progressive, I'm working class and also a renter. And I'm running for city council because the status quo needs to change. It's not working for the people of Austin. A poll came out that the majority of Austinites are not happy with the direction the city is moving in. And the business as usual that has been happening on council is not the way to, um, to get us to where we need to be. And so I'd like to be a voice on council that brings not only professional academic experience, as well as lived experience, um, being someone who has all of those different intersectionalities because representation does matter so much, as well as having been involved with so many boots on the ground, uh, grassroots organizations in kind of an activist and organizer capacity. So I'd love to bring all of that with me onto council to ensure that um, all all of our voices are being heard in the district. Okay, great. Um, I saw on your website, you have three main priorities um, in running. So I want to make sure we talk about all of them. We'll start with housing and housing affordability. Obviously, this is the big one. um, But what I'm really interested in is everyone's approach, the different candidates approach to this issue. And um, it seems like from looking through your website, you really want to go all in on making some changes to our development code in order to bring out more housing. Talk about some of those. Yes, our our code needs changing so that we can increase our diversity of housing types, as well as the diversity of incomes that are accessible for housing all across the city, 
Right now, the Eastern Crescent has taken on a large majority of the burden when it comes to development, and that has led to mass amounts of displacement and gentrification that we see today. So I would like to uh, be on council to help spread the, uh, the growth of the city throughout all of our zip codes so that we can meet existing demands as well as future demands since Austin is projected to be a city of 4 million people by 2040. Um, we have this mentality in the past of if we don't build it, they can't come. Well, obviously that is not true. They came <laughs> and, they, and they just pushed other people out, which is not only a matter of inequity and injustice, but it's also an economic issue. We are seeing businesses struggle to maintain um, folks working there because a lot of the people who would work our service industry jobs, our cleaning jobs, our our EMS and our fire, they can't afford to live here anymore. So they're having to move to other cities, to other towns, commute if they have a car and if they have the time and the money to do so, but otherwise they're just going to get jobs somewhere else. So um, we, we have to be able to have affordable housing um, across income levels and across the city so that anyone can have the opportunity for a great quality of life here in Austin. Right. And I saw on your website, um, two of the, the main things you'd like to propose within that land development code um, revision is talking about reducing or eliminating park minimum parking requirements, as well as um, reducing or eliminating single family zoning. Can you talk a little bit about why you mentioned both of those things? Yes, I would love to. Um, single family zoning has a, a not so nice past to it. Uh, it was created um, for kind of racist intentions um, so that it can keep uh, people who didn't have as much economic power um, in our communities. And those folks tended to be black and brown folks. Um, single family zoning currently prevents denser forms of housing, whether it be a duplex, a fourplex, a sixplex, from being built in neighborhoods when folks buy a property and they want to redevelop it. And we need to have more dense housing so we can meet this housing supply again to hopefully relieve that pressure from buying up existing affordable properties. Um, if we are able to um, have more units on a lot rather than a single family home throughout the city, then folks aren't going to be looking um, to just buy up old, less expensive properties and, re and turn them into McMansions, which is what we are seeing all across Eastern Crescent because their only options with single family zoning is replacing an old house with a new big house. And that isn't really serving anyone, especially the communities that have existed there for generations. And when it comes to parking minimums, we are working towards Austin being a more walkable city, a more transit friendly city. So we want to create a culture where folks feel that they can um, ride the bus, that it's reliable, that it's safe, that it's clean, that we have um, safe bike routes, uh, wide sidewalks. And uh, we just want to encourage people to use different forms of micro mobility and multi, multimodal um, mobility. And in doing that, ideally reduce the dependency on cars so that we don't have to have multiple parking spots per bedroom in a house. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure we touch on the other issues. So maybe if we can answer this one quickly, but I'll okay. say this idea around single family zoning is 
um, one that has really split our community so much, right? It's like you see people who are, I think, in your camp who are saying, hey, look, like that redevelopment is happening whether we like it or not, and it's being replaced. Other people who say, hey, if we get rid of single family zoning, that destroys our neighborhoods, that further pushes people out. Can you just kind of give a little bit of a of why you've kind of come down on this uh stance in this way? Yeah, I mean, I I really um I don't see it as, as destroying a neighborhood. All I see it as bringing more community members into a neighborhood. And uh, it, sh it has been proven in studies that more denser communities, folks tend to know their neighbors more. Um, they're interacting more often with one another. And replacing one home with a duplex isn't going to change the character much of a neighborhood. And uh, I think we have to explore, again, these diverse forms of housing types. I currently live in a duplex. I love my duplex. I'm in a neighborhood with single family homes, with small apartment complexes, with fourplexes, sixplexes. And it's my favorite. I mean, I'm a little biased, but it's my favorite neighborhood in Austin. Um, and I think everyone who lives here loves living here. Um, so I, I understand the concern. I think it's important that we do ask developers to take into account the character of a neighborhood, the history of a neighborhood when doing these developments and think of what kind of multifamily fits within the character of a neighborhood. But we do have to be more comfortable with multifamily uh, housing developments. Right. Um, I want to talk about another issue um, that you mentioned on your website, another priority, which is environmental justice, climate justice. Um, as you know, the city of Austin, we passed this climate equity plan, um, I don't know, a year ago-ish now. And um, I think there's a lot of feeling from the community of like, are, are we moving on this? Are we moving fast enough? Like we have this plan. How do we make it really happen? Um, if you're elected, what's kind of going to be your approach to, to climate justice and climate work? Well, I would like to take that plan off the shelf, dust it off because <laughs> it hasn't been used enough. We're not moving fast enough on it. We had so many brilliant minds come together and put this plan um, so that anyone in city could use it. It's got tons of great equity tools and community input, and it shows what folks are looking for when it comes to climate justice. So I would like to incorporate different parts of the plan across the work that we're doing. Environmental justice is a through line. It's the lens through which I view everything. And so I want to make sure that we are prioritizing um, tree canopies throughout the Eastern Crescent because we have heat islands uh, in East Austin that we are working to protect our waterways and we're working towards water conservation since that is going to be a huge issue moving forward as climate change continues to make our summers hotter and our rains less reliable. Um, we have to take into consideration flooding as we continue to develop. The more that we develop and we have concrete and we're paving over stuff, that's going to make flooding worse. So how can we use density to avoid building onto greenfield? How can we use native plants with deep root systems to act as flood mitigators? All of these things have to be taken into consideration to, again, make everyone's quality of life in Austin great, regardless of the zip code that you live in. Yeah. And then what about healthcare? That's another big one. Obviously, the district you represent, especially during COVID, there was a lot of conversations around access to vaccines, access to healthcare services. Um, we're, you know, coming out the other end of COVID, but obviously there's still a lot of need for healthcare services. Where do you see council could be filling that role for that community? Yeah, so I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but actually East Austin has a 20 year shorter life expectancy than West Austin. So there is a huge issue of health inequity and it comes from many different facets. One of them just being physical geographic access to healthcare. Um, 
our district is what's known as a healthcare desert. We don't have a hospital on the east side. And we have so many folks who could benefit from having that access to a doctor. Um, and we just need to work towards seeing if we can make that happen, as well as diversifying forms of healthcare. For example, there's a new clinic that opened up um, off of uh, Isa Sarchavez called Karisha, and they offer sliding scale healthcare. They have MDs, but they also offer yoga therapy and acupuncture, and they have dietitians. And the folks who are working there are of all different races and um, income levels. And so the types of healthcare that we're offering should also reflect the communities that they're serving. Um, in addition, it's also an area of food apartheid, aka a food desert. So working to make access to fresh, healthy, affordable food is a top priority. My background is in food security. So trying to get a small walkable grocery store in some of the neighborhoods that don't yet have them can also help address um, some of the health inequities that we're seeing. Okay. And uh, before we close, um, let's do a little show and tell time. We've been doing this with all of our candidates, get to know them a little bit better. Uh, tell me about the object you brought today. Yes. Yeah, so this here, um, oh, I can't even take, oh yes, I can. Okay. So this is um, some context behind it. I am just over three years sober. Um, I stopped um, consuming different substances um, uh, a little over three years ago. And um, my friend on my first year of sobriety made me my own chip. And it's oh. my, my one-year chip. Um, she painted it herself. Um, she put a small quote here on the back that reads, the heart of a man is very much like the sea. It has its storms, it has its tides, and it has its depths. It has its pearls too. So this is a Van Gogh quote. And I feel that this uh, is a beautiful representation, not only of who I am, but the kind of um, elected official I would like to be, someone that is intentional. Um, this chip just reminds me of community and the people who I have surrounded myself with, the people who love me and care about me, that we support one, in, one another, that we have each other's backs when we fall on hard times, but also that we're expressing um, our emotions through artwork, which is so important to Austin. I mean, Austin is, is weird and it's weird because of its mm -hmm. artists, because of its musicians and those folks, again, they can't afford to live here anymore. I mean, my neighborhood has so many are uh, musicians that live in it. You can hear band practice going on <laughs> at pretty much any night of the week, but that's going, that has slowly been lessening because folks are just having to move out to Lockhart or to Buda. And so um, I just love that, that this was so intentional. It brings about artwork. It brings about the mindfulness of community and that I would take this intentionality of, of not only talking about um, the importance of healthcare, but, but walking the talk as well. Uh, and bringing that into office. And that was Daniela Silva. And that's all of our interviews for today. In our next episode, we'll be focusing on the runoff elections in District 5 and 9, which are in South and Central Austin. And as always, we'll be releasing tons of guides on social media leading up to the election. So make sure you're following us at the underscore Austin underscore common. And that's our show for today. Don't forget to vote. <laughs>